Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine podcast. With you is Dr. Danya Koja. I'm an emergency physician who practices all over the world. And I'm Wendy Chang, an emergency physician and neurointensivist in Baltimore, Maryland. And today we're going to be talking about the Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine publication, the August 2021 issue. And if you don't know what Critical Decisions is, what are you waiting for? It's ASAP's official CME publication, and it's a fantastic resource to reach out to every month. Each month, there are two lessons that cover the bread and butter of emergency medicine or things that are cutting edge. But the best part is that they focus on the critical decisions that you need to think of. There are also a lot of other features, such as the critical EKG, critical procedure, and as our listeners know, my favorite, the LLSA review. So let's start with the first lesson, critical or colic, the crying child. Thank you to Drs. Adiola Kosoko and Jensi Abraham for writing this article. I don't know. When, when a child comes crying or is crying anywhere, whether out in public or in the emergency department, I, I get kind of stressed because I'm like, that's a lot of noise. And why are they crying? Exactly. It's can, it can be pretty stressful because you're just like, wait, is something actually wrong? Or are you just trying to express yourself in baby words? And I don't know what you're trying to say. And it is not just common in public. It's also common in the emergency department. Apparently, 13.6% of cases of peds that present to the ED are excessive crying. And basically, the whole idea is that when you have a baby that's crying and the typical methods are not working, which are like bouncing, singing, rocking, and giving them a pacifier, when these things don't work, then you're like, oh, this is an excessively crying child, which I mean... I don't know that you can measure how good you are at these things. I mean, maybe you really suck at singing. So maybe that's not the issue. Maybe the issue is not that the baby's not consolable. <laughs> I mean, come on, Wendy. It's because your song is not very soothing. I mean, or you need more pacifiers. Maybe more is better. I mean, think about it for a second there, right? I mean, like, who who says you're the good baby singer, right? That makes all the babies, like, stop crying. So... One, we need to have some sort of systematic like quantification of that. But two, we need an organized approach for when these patients come to the emergency department because the differential can vary pretty widely between things that are simple like colic and reflux to things that are super scary like a UTI, a surgical emergency and obstruction. That's very true. I mean, when they're crying, how do we even triage them? Their vitals are going to be all out of whack. And again, they look red because they're crying. <laughs> yes. And then they're thrashing around if they're, you know, large enough to thrash. But it can definitely be difficult. And we know that the heart rate, the blood pressure, the respiratory rate will all be falsely elevated. So, of course, we need to check them again when the baby is calmer. If we go down that trajectory of, okay, baby finally calm, baby finally can go home, maybe perhaps. However, the pulse ox should not be affected if you're able to get a good waveform. So if you have an abnormal pulse ox, then that's definitely a red flag. Now, when patients have hypoxia, then you definitely need to think, is this cardiopulmonary disease that's making them feel uncomfortable and agitated? If their tachycardia is persistent, despite them appearing like they're calmer, they need to think of things like arrhythmias. And if they have a fever, then you need to think of an infection. I know these are things that are super obvious, but sometimes we're just like, okay, hot red baby, hot red baby. And we just, you know, don't even fully triage them, which happens sometimes. That's a really good point. So what 
should we pay attention to in the history? So we need to get a good history. And we need to keep in mind that the person coming in with a baby may not be able to correctly console them for a multitude of reasons. They may be first time parents. They may be a new caregiver in the life of this child. They may be unwell themselves, either from an acute or chronic illness or a million other things. One question that may help us is understanding what are the events that led to their presentation. And then the second thing, which is what we always ask about with babies, is the baby's activities. And thankfully, babies don't have a lot of activities. All they do is pee, poop, eat, and sleep. So if you ask about all these four things, then, you know, you should be golden. So if the feeding patterns have changed, have they changed the type of feeding, the baby appears to have a different tolerance of those feeds, then we need to think of things like reflux, like stenosis, like an obstruction. If the baby hasn't pooped in a few days, they're probably just really annoyed because they're constipated. Or they may have an actual problem that's making them not poop, but that would be a big hint that that is where the issue lies. If a baby has blood in their stool, then one thing we think of is an anal fissure, and maybe that's why they cry. It really hurts. Another thing is milk protein intolerance. And a couple of other scary things are intussusception, which is a surgical emergency, and then Meckel's diverticulum, which you and I know a lot about because we talked about this a couple of episodes ago. And then, of course, something we got to keep in mind is that when there are red flags for non-accidental trauma, the baby may present with only crying. Got it. I mean, people refer to babies as being colicky. What what really is colic and who, who really, when can we really make this diagnosis? Well, I personally prefer calling um, babies either cuddly or snotty. Colicky is not a pleasant thing to call them. <laughs> However, true, apparently, true. <laughs> apparently there's a rule of threes that is like your common colicky baby, right? So that they cry for th- more than three hours a day more than three days a week, and for more than three weeks. If this happens, then that's a colicky baby. And this sounds like horrifying. So usually it happens, it starts at like two weeks of age, not really before that. It peaks at six weeks, and it should end somewhere between 12 and 16 weeks. That is the typical colic presentation. Got it. Now moving on to the exam, what should we look for? The two most important things you got to remember. One is your general impression of the baby. And two, naked baby. You have to expose the baby fully and examine them thoroughly because you may miss the little hint that's going to tell you what the problem is. And also, if you don't do a thorough exam, then you're not really sure that they're fine when you say, hey, you know what? Your baby is just crying. They're colicky, whatever it is. Just take them home. So if the baby's active and alert and they're just annoyed and crying, that's very different from an ill-appearing baby who's crying. So you got to observe them. You got to observe what they do. Not necessarily when you come into the room because you're, you know, scary new person. They may be starting to have stranger anxiety or something like that. But observing them from the door and trying to see how they react, how they're behaving, that may be very helpful. We definitely need to do a good head and neck exam that includes the fontanelles and includes a fluorescein eye exam for corneal abrasions because babies scratch their eyes, right? You can't explain to babies that they should not be scratching their eyes. They don't know that. So they have tiny little fingers and then tiny little nails and they can be really hard to cut. And then they can like pull off their little mitts. They may be small, but babies can be tough to deal with. So then they can scratch their eye and then now they're really annoyed that they scratch their eye and then they can't tell you they scratch their eye. So corneal abrasions are definitely something to think about. And you gotta do a cardiopulmonary exam. And if their heart rate is more than 220, that's unlikely to be just the crying. That's probably also a little bit of SVT in there that would probably make anyone really annoyed. 
If you're able to, at some point in time, get them quiet enough to hear a murmur, then fantastic. At least now you have something to go by. And then definitely do a GI, GU, and a rectal exam to make sure that the baby has no surgical emergency. A couple of tricky ones are hair tourniquet and phimosis and paraphimosis, torsion. Those are things that can get missed if you don't look into that diaper. And then finally, do a good skin and joint exam looking for rashes and injuries. Great tips. Let's say you've now examined this naked baby. What are some things you have to consider as part of your differential for, you know, a crying child? So table one in the article has a great mnemonic to remind you of the serious causes of crying in a child. It cries. So it's really easy to remember because it is crying a lot. So I stands for infection. T is for trauma. C is for cardiac. R is for reaction, like from a medicine reflux and rectal. I is for intussusception. E is for eyes, for corneal abrasions. And S is for strangulation, like a hernia, a torsion, or a hair tourniquet. Cool. That's a really helpful mnemonic. Then how do we work up these kids? Certainly based on what you're suspicious for, but are there any really important tests? So as you pointed out, Wendy, not everybody needs testing. It depends on what your exam and history are pointing to. However, it may be, just maybe, worth getting a UA and a U culture in some of these kids if you can't tell what's going on. The yield is pretty low. It's like 1%, maybe a little bit better in those that are younger than four months. But the idea is that you may be able to pick up on a UTI that's causing them to be this irritable and unconsolable, and they have not yet had any other symptoms like fevers and whatnot. You have to have a low threshold for ultrasound. If you're thinking of an intra-abdominal emergency, like intussusception, think of ultrasounds if you're thinking of like testicular torsion. And keep your advanced imaging and your ionizing radiation like CTs for things that are more trauma indicative. Definitely, your workup should be on a case-by-case basis. That makes sense. What if they look good and your workup is negative? Well, you need to observe them in the emergency department and then discharge them. However, the tricky part here is that nobody really knows what observe means. There's no really clear time frame. However, you just got to feel comfortable enough and the parents got to feel comfortable enough to take this child home. It also allows you to observe the interactions between the child and the family and may allow you to share some helpful hints or pick up on some concerns if that is the case. The other thing is that parents may ask you questions about things like grape water, semethicon, changing formula, and there's no real evidence for any of this stuff. However, the only thing that may have a little bit of evidence is giving breastfed infants probiotics. That may decrease the colic and may help with that. The most important thing when you decide to discharge someone, especially a crying baby, is to give the parents good discharge instructions. Make sure that they're attending to their basic needs, like are they fed? They have clean diapers. Are they pooping and whatnot? Make sure they know how to soothe the child and recognize physical deterioration. It's also recommended for babies like that to have some sort of follow-up in 24 hours, either with their pediatrician or in the emergency department, mostly to make sure everything is fine. And then finally, reassure the caregivers that it is not their fault that the baby is crying and ask and see if they have support because a crying infant can be very challenging to deal with. And if caregivers are very, very stressed, that may lead to caregiver distress and to shaken baby syndrome. The article does have quite a few helpful resources that you can share with the parents to hopefully avoid that happening to the child. 
Well, thank you, Dania. That was a super helpful article. Thank you for taking us through it. I learned that maybe my methods of soothing a baby may be leading to the fact that the baby is crying inconsolably because maybe I can't sing or maybe I'm not rocking them right. But in any case, obviously, we're very much dependent on our typical EM senses on whether the baby appears sick versus not sick and remembering to always reassess, especially your vital signs, uh, especially when the initial ones that may be falsely elevated because they were unhappy at that time. A good history is super important as well. Paying attention to their basic activities like peeing, pooping, eating, and sleeping. And remember that if you're making a diagnosis of colic, you're really dealing with a baby who's having these symptoms, the rule of threes, between two weeks to 16 weeks of age. You have to have to have to get the baby naked, including the diaper off so that you can look for things like corneal abrasions and hair tourniquets because they are little Houdinis that somehow injure themselves in those ways. Naked Houdinis. <laughs> And there's a great mnemonic in the article to help us remember all the different conditions that we have to pay attention to as part of our differential, including infectious, trauma, cardiac, strangulation, etc. Well, ultimately, your workup is going to depend on how the baby appears and what you're most suspicious of. And if they look good and the workup is negative, then a lot of your work is going to be surrounding good discharge instructions and making sure the parents are supported. Well, that was a great summary of a great article. So keeping up with the pediatric theme, our newest feature, clinical pediatrics. This month, we're talking about infantile hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. Yeah, so it's a textbook story of an infant who starts having vomiting between three to six weeks of age and gets worse over time. It happens immediately after they try and eat and the baby is still hungry and wants to, you know, have their bottle again. Oftentimes it's misdiagnosis reflux. This most commonly happens in white firstborn males and there's a lot of genetic and environmental components. The most important to remember is family history. On your exam, you may find a palpable olive-like mass in the epigastric area, which can appear on your board exams, though it is less common now because with the use of ultrasound and hopefully an earlier diagnosis, we catch these before it's that severe. Ultrasound findings include pyloric muscle thickness that's greater than 3 millimeters and a canal length that's greater than 15 millimeters. And there's a great figure in the article. And treatment is, of course, to correct their electrolytes if they're coming in with so much vomiting and to refer them to surgery. So moving on to even more peds in this episode, we're going to end up being like pediatricians after this. <laughs> the LLSA review about pediatric asthma, which I mean, is pretty common. And this is a fantastic thing to remind ourselves of. In this LSA review, they review the article by Batabialatal called Improving Management of Severe Asthma, BiPAP and Beyond, that was published in Clinical Pediatric Emergency Medicine in 2018. So clearly, from the title, we're focusing on what happens beyond the inhaled beta agonist, supplemental oxygen, steroids. So take us through this, Wendy. Yeah, we still have a few other treatments in our toolbox. We oftentimes use continuous albuterol nibs because it's been shown to improve the patient's clinical symptoms and reduce admissions. We also use magnesium to relax the smooth muscles and relax the bronchi. And remember that you can give 25 to 75 milligrams per kilogram, a max dose of two grams. Epi as an alpha and beta agonist or terbutaline as a, as a beta agonist can be used also for severe airway obstruction. 
Now with the availability of high-flow nasal cannula, it's a great tool because it gives a little bit of peep and can avoid the use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, although there are no large studies for this. For non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, data is also limited, but if you're using it to help support their work of breathing, you're aiming for a tidal volume of 5 to 7 cc's per kilo. And Heliox is also a good tool, but it's really important to remember that these are not for your hypoxic patients, really, because you can only really use it for those needing FiO2 of 30% or less. But with the improved laminar flow, it can improve uh, peak expiratory flow. And so it can really kind of be used as a support until all the therapies that you've given takes effect. Those are great reminders for our sicker pediatric asthma patients. And quite a lot of this actually applies to our, you know, normal sized asthma patients as well. So great reminders. Now, moving on to completely different trajectory here, our critical cases in orthopedics and trauma this month, we're talking about a case of laryngotracheal injury with a review of the topic. It's an interesting case where this diagnosis was initially missed, which is actually quite common uh, because symptoms don't always correlate with the severity of injuries. We have to think about it in blunt multi-trauma patients who may actually have swallowing difficulties or those who have massive sub-Q emphysema. For example, if you have a patient who has a pneumothorax with persistent air leak after you place a chest tube, you also have to think about this. Diagnosis is made with higher resolution neck CT, fiber optic scope, or a bronch. And medical versus surgical treatment is really dependent on the severity of this injury. Such a quick and focused review. And the article has fantastic images as well that are worth looking at. So keeping up with our trauma theme, our critical image this month is about blunt cervical vascular injury. And this is a case of an MVC with a resulting facial fracture and a non-op cervical spine fracture, like a C7 transverse process, which we usually are like, yeah, whatever, who cares? It's just a transverse process, right? They didn't really break their neck like that. But in this particular case, the patient was found to have a vertebral artery injury. And that is really the crux of this case. That's right. So in this case, we may think that it's obvious to think about cervical vascular injuries because the patient has a cervical spine fracture. But we actually need to think about it also with other high energy mechanisms where there might be excessive cervical motion with or without, you know, cervical spine fractures. And the reason we have to have a high index of suspicion is because we have to order the correct vascular imaging to make the diagnosis. And if we don't think about it, then we'll miss it. So you do need an angiography of some sort, usually CT angiography uh, as part of your trauma evaluation, but certainly MR angiography or traditional angiography would work too. The scary thing is that two-thirds of these patients have a normal neurological exam, but you know uh, about 14% of vertebral injuries and 30% of carotid injuries can actually progress to causing strokes if they're untreated. Definitely a diagnosis that we need to pay more attention to. And I think that we keep hearing more and more about it because we're just doing a better job of detecting it. And the article does mention the Denver criteria, which increases the detection of this relatively rare but devastating injury by around 25%. And it basically lists injuries that are high risk. And the one I think gets dismissed the most is a mandible fracture. Like somebody gets punched in the face, they break their jaw, and you're like, oh yeah, they just got punched in the face. Um, you got to image their neck. Yeah, it takes a lot of force to break the mandible, for sure. 
So these injuries are graded based on, as you can imagine, the severity of the vascular injury. And that can be anywhere from just intimal irregularity to a dissection, to a pseudoaneurysm, to actually occlusion of the vessel or even transection. And the treatment is dependent on the grade of the injury. It can start with antiplatelets or anticoagulation. And in very severe cases, such as occlusions and transections, you may actually need endovascular or operative treatment. Another great review of a critical diagnosis. And even more trauma, because apparently this issue we're doing three of everything. Our critical procedure this month is DPL, diagnostic peritoneal lavage, specifically a closed inframbilical diagnostic peritoneal lavage. And one can argue that no one does them at all, but I've actually seen one done in the past decade. Have you, Mehdi? Maybe not in the past (laughs) decade. Maybe in the past two decades. (laughs) All right. So see, this is a great refresher because apparently (laughs) we need to know how to do this. Yeah, exactly. So as we all know, our critical feature always has a great diagram and the steps laid out. And so for this procedure, you have to start by decompressing the bladder and the stomach because we certainly don't want to puncture those organs. That would be frowned upon. Yeah, exactly. And (laughs) non-diagnostic. Nope. (laughs) And then you're going to start by, of course, prepping the skin in your sterile field, giving some local anesthesia two to three centimeters below the umbilicus, then make a two to four millimeter midline incision. And the crux of this is you're going to use an 18 gauge needle at a 45 degree angle towards the pelvis and aspirate. If you do get 10 cc's or more of blood, then that's diagnostically positive and you can stop. If not, then the next step is you're going to advance a J-wire and use the Seldinger technique to advance a peritoneal catheter or an 8 French dialysis catheter. And then finally, the lavage portion is instilling 15 cc's per kilo up to one liter of saline and then allowing the fluid then to drain by gravity to see what comes out. And remember that for pelvic fractures, you do pretty much the same thing, but you'd go in the supraumbilical region just so that you're avoiding the hematomas from the pelvic fracture. So for the critical EKG, we talk about our differential for a wide complex tachycardia, which is VTAC, 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 and VTAC. Um, and then maybe sinus tac with aberrant conduction. And that's only in people who have like really clear P's. Or you got to think of SVT with aberrant conduction, which is super tricky. And it's really a diagnosis of exclusion. So unless you're really confident of what you're saying, then just say um, VTAC. And keep in mind that retrograde P waves can be present just like it is in this particular example. So take a peek and don't let that confuse you into thinking that this is an SVT with aberrant conduction. Nope, it is VTAC. So fix it, please. Great reminders. So our second lesson of this issue is balancing the scales, eating disorders. Thank you to doctors Taylor Renbarger and Joanne Pearson for writing this article. So it appears that eating disorders are more prevalent than we think. And we got to keep in mind that when patients with eating disorders present in the emergency department with complications, they are going to have worse outcomes than those who are coming in with the same complaints without the underlying eating disorder. That's true. I don't think we learn enough about eating disorders. And it can be quite scary because 
complications of starvation and if this is uh, intentional suicide, um, it can be quite deadly. Oftentimes, patients are really presenting with vague symptoms like fatigue or weakness or palpitations and syncope or even abdominal pain and chest pain. You're absolutely right with us not knowing enough about eating disorders. So there are many types. What do we need to focus on from a signs and symptoms standpoint in order for us to think of these eating disorders in a busy emergency department? I think our role is less so, of course, diagnosing what type of eating disorder it is, but recognizing that it may exist. And classically, we may think about low BMI in patients with anorexia, uh, but it's important to remember that patients with bulimia actually may have normal weight or they may be overweight. And it doesn't have to be a patient who has some type of misconception about their body image, because even patients with autism spectrum disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders, or even anxiety can have disordered eating. And so really, again, a spectrum of patients can have eating disorders. In the textbook, we've classically been taught that patients may present with signs like painless, enlarged parotid glands, halitosis, uh, calluses on the dorsum of their hands from inducing vomiting, brittle hairs and nails, etc. But again, those are textbook and uh, patients don't always read textbooks. I think having a high index of suspicion is important. Maybe uh, in a lot of cases, also having some using screening tools, uh, such as the two that the article mentions, the scoff questionnaire or the HEADS exam for to assess general risky behavior in adolescents can also be helpful. Great reminders. So what are some of the complications of these eating disorders, as you had mentioned before? Well, with their malnutrition, you're going to have breakdown of fat and muscles. And the breakdown of muscles can even include their heart. And so these patients can end up having mitral valve prolapse, dysrhythmias, quite scary for sure. The loss of fat can lead to SMA syndrome. And another scary thing is that with their malnutrition and poor bone mineralization, they can have early osteoporosis that may actually be irreversible even when they recover from this. So again, long-term side effects from this. The use of laxatives and diuretics and inducing vomiting can lead to, of course, a lot of electrolyte abnormalities, especially hypokalemia. And if they have a lot of vomiting, you have to worry about esophageal pathology, peptidoulcer disease, or even pneumomediastinum or pneumothorax. And don't forget, those who actually have pica can present with obstructions, bezoars, or toxic ingestion, such as with lead paint. I think the scariest thing I learned from this article is that more than 50% of patients report having had suicidal ideations, and suicide actually leads to up to 20% of deaths in patients with bulimia and anorexia. That definitely is concerning, and it's something that's very eye-opening, and I don't think we think enough about this or take it seriously enough. So how do we evaluate patients with eating disorders in the emergency department? Well, depending on their presentation, you may need an ECG to evaluate for arrhythmia, uh, CBC, electrolytes, liver function tests, albumin, things like that to evaluate for, again, the severity of their malnutrition, the electrolyte derangements, etc. Uh, but I think it's also important to remember that you should have a differential that includes things like malignancy, GI disorders, endocrine disorders, or even infectious diseases like HIV in patients presenting with similar symptoms. So how do we decide who needs to be admitted? 
I think those who are presenting really, really sick from these complications, we know that they need to be admitted because they may be having vital sign instability or very severe electrolyte abnormalities or even end organ damage. But don't forget, of course, if they have acute suicide ideations or other psych emergencies, they would need to be admitted too. In addition, patients who actually have had a rapid weight loss, more than 10% in three months, or really, really severe weight loss may also need to be admitted, or perhaps they also need a close supervision to even to eat because they may not have the motivation to eat. Another group to be worried about are those who are at risk for developing refeeding syndrome, and those patients really need to be admitted because of the complications that can occur from refeeding syndrome. So what is refeeding syndrome? Well, refeeding syndrome actually can be fatal because of the electrolyte and fluid shifts that can occur. Essentially, these people, again, are chronically malnourished. And as you start nutrition on them, it's going to lead to a release of insulin that stimulates intracellular shifts of potassium, phosphorus, and magnesium. And that causes further serum depletions of these electrolytes. So as you can imagine, if you have really low potassium, phosphorus, or magnesium, these patients can develop arrhythmias. They can have respiratory failure from diaphragmatic weakness. They can have ileus, seizures, pulmonary edema, a gamut of things. These usually happen within 72 hours of refeeding, but can occur up to seven days. For us in the ED, we may not be restarting nutrition in a lot of these patients, but if we were to give glucose or some sort of nutrients during our resuscitation, we should pay attention to how much we're giving. And then more importantly, if patients have really low phosphorus, we need to aggressively replete those. That's a great tip. I don't think we always think of actually obtaining phosphorus on patients in the emergency department if it's not, you know, already drawn in triage or part of some like weird panel that everybody automatically orders. But I don't really sit there and think, hmm, I would love to know this patient's phosphorus. So this is a great tip. And actually, this article was filled with great tips on something we don't think about often enough. So thank you, Wendy, for going through this article. Definitely eye-opening about how eating disorders can affect our care of patients in the ED. One, patients can come in with vague complaints, and this should be on our differential. And patients are not going to be textbook calluses on the dorsum of the hands, halitosis, enlarged parotids. And if we work, especially with an adolescent population, we do need to have some sort of screening tools in place that there can be a lot of complications, not necessarily long-term, but also short-term, like pneumomediastinum, obstructions, and toxic ingestions. And the most important one is suicidal ideation and completed suicides. And as we had just talked about, think of refeeding syndrome in patients who are going to need to be resuscitated and refed in the ED. So thank you again for going through this. And for our drug box this month, it's on cyclobenzaprine for back pain. Dun, dun, dun. Wait, maybe. I'm making the dun, dun, dun sound because that's how I feel about this drug. No, I, I think it needs to sound like, for me, it needs to be like a scary sound or like, I don't like you sound. Is, is there a sound that's like, I don't like you sound? <laughs> I don't know if I have a sound for that. <laughs> Unfortunately, people like prescribing this medication for back pain, but really there's very poor evidence for it. It is better than placebo. I'll give you that. 
Uh, but adding it to NSAIDs like naproxen. You know what's root- better than placebo? What? Cupcakes. If you give me cupcakes <laughs> when I have back pain, I'll feel better on my back pain. Just just putting it out there. All right. All right. New uh, initiative. Cupcake, cupcakes in the ED. <laughs> I, I, th- I think it would be fantastic. I mean, it, it probably works better than cyclobenzaprine. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Because it does not improve outcome or pain in non-traumatic back pain. It is, however, a centrally acting cyclical antidepressant, so it can cause drowsiness and other side effects like reflex reflex tachycardia from vasodilation, curious widening from sodium channel blockade, seizures uh, from interference with the GABA receptor. So it sounds like a lot of bad, but not too much good. Hence, the cupcake. Thankfully, you do like cupcakes instead of now more fish. Yeah, so yeah, you know what I, I'm gonna I'm gonna come up with a thing where I don't read the tox box anymore because now it's back to making me not want to eat because we're talking today about ciguatera poisoning and it is the most commonly reported poisoning by fish consumption in the United States. So apparently you have these like dinoflagellates that hang out on your tropical and subtropical fish and they excrete this toxin that's like omnistable. Because it's stable in acid, it's stable in heat, and, you know, you take it and it's not good because it causes influx of sodium. And like two to six hours after consumption, you think, oh, I'm just having a little bit of GI symptoms, some diarrhea, some vomiting. But then you start to have neurosymptoms that last for days to weeks. And it's all these crazy things where you feel like your teeth are falling out and you have this reversal of hot, cold sensation. And it's not just like annoying stuff. It's also like, you know, like like you die things. So seizures, bradycardia, orthostatic hypotension. I, why do you not want me to eat fish, Wendy? <laughs> I, I didn't say you can't eat fish. Maybe just not tropical or subtropical fish. <laughs> well, okay. Then are you going to get me cupcakes? Cupcakes in the shape of fish. So there actually are a lot of like traditional Japanese sweets where it's like a... Um, yeah, like the biscuits that are filled with like red bean paste that look like fish. Yes, exactly. Perfect. See, they got it right. <laughs> so those would not give you ciguatera poisoning. However, if you do see a patient with ciguatera poisoning, then the treatment is going to be symptomatic. It's pretty interesting in this tox box, they talk about giving the patient mannitol, although there's no evidence. But the idea is that you fix things. I don't know. And then for long-term neuro stuff, that's where it gets really tricky like your amitriptyline, gabapentin, pregabalin. And then, of course, like, you know, fluid for the orthostatic hypertension, atropine for the bradycardia, benzos for the seizures, you know, the huge. So once again, no tropical or subtropical fish. Those are just to look at. I, you, you know what happens when, when we start going down that road, Wendy. You know what happens. <laughs> so thank you so much for going through this issue with me. Our dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed listening to us as much as we've enjoyed recording this. We hope that you find the Critical Decisions publication in our podcast always informative, often enlightening, and never boring. We would love to hear from you and connect with you on our Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Tanya Koja. And mine is at EM underscore NCC. And until next month. Bye-bye.